0: Velasquez Digital Media Communications helped the long dance come to life. Whether you need consulting or audio production services, Velasquez Media has the right tools for podcast creators. Find us on the web at velasquezmedia.com. That's V-E-L-A-S-Q-U-E-Z media.com.
1: Mysteries like the long dance can be a lot of fun, but not everything needs to be a mystery, like finding the right home. I'm Lana Pierce, a realtor with Keller Williams. Whether you're local or not, contact me at Durham NC Realty or Lana Pierce at kw.com. Let me investigate the right options for you. Lana Pierce Realtor, homes are my hustle. Leave the detective work to the professionals.
2: Hi, this is Eric. And Steve from the Writer Types podcast. If you dig the long dance as much as we do, check out our conversations with crime, mystery, and thriller authors like Sarah Paretsky, Blake Crouch, and Gillian Flynn.
3: We even interviewed Eric Pruitt. Find writer types wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
0: You're listening to The Long Dance, an eight-part true crime podcast hosted by investigative reporter Drew Adamek and crime fiction author Eric Pruitt. This is episode two, The Two Thames. If you haven't listened to episode one, we encourage you to stop here and go back so you can catch up to speed. If you have yet to subscribe, please do so. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you find great podcasts. Be sure to check out our website, thelongdancepodcasts.com. Most of all, thank you for listening.
4: Hello?
5: Hi, this is Captain Moore? It is. Hey, this is Jamie. How are you doing? I don't
6: think we've been over the phone yet. You've been dealing with Robin Hume and Morgan? Yes, I have.
5: Yes, I'm the Supervising Attorney General
6: Justice. Uh, Robin and Morgan are currently on a different project. Okay. Um, but I'm calling in regards to like, McBain and Van. Uh, yes. So we want our legal consultant read that case, although we all think that this would make TV movies. Huh. Uh, we don't think that, unfortunately, that it doesn't help you out under a case.
5: Okay.
6: We, we talked about different scenarios and and all of that. But, but the different doctors and also too, like um, just in regards to like we're very cognizant of like just any of our kids ever go to trial, right? And like right. that's that's right of being you know, our department or your department or us, like, being sued by the defendants, like, it's also a right that so we take into consideration, and we wouldn't work on something unless we really thought we could help. But, I mean, I remember hearing my story months ago, and I was like, yes, yes, and we all agreed, like, if we could make this, this because a TV movie, like, we would, like, the story is incredible. Like, all the twists and turns. Uh, it's also a very tragic story. Um, unfortunately, we do have the past.
5: That's okay, I mean, i've run into many hurdles thus far since i've been i can i can imagine right now you know hopefully we've done uh a fair amount of work and we've gotten dna profiles some willingly some you know secretly you know we've had some forensic experts look at the rope and it's pretty much everybody's belief that somewhere on the rope. Albeit the victim's DNA and other people's DNA may be on there, that somewhere on the rope, the, D, the DNA of the killer is on there. And so we're, we're going to try to have the rope basically liquidated. I mean, just taken apart fiber by fiber
3: and try to have that profile. That's done. Tim Horn. That he's captain of the criminal investigation division at the Orange County Sheriff's Office. For the past six months, he's hung hopes that a true crime cable television show might invest resources into investigating the 1971 double homicide of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. But if
5: not, at least we'd have some kind of closure for the family. So we're going to take a stab at it and and just see what happens. But I appreciate you guys taking a look at it. Uh, Disappointed, yes. Are my feelings hurt? No. Uh, uh, It's not that kind of situation. And if you have a chance to pass it on to someone else that fits their, their needs, certainly feel free to try to put us in, you know, in contact with one another. We can always use the help.
7: Captain Tim Horn was two years old when the bodies of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain were found tied to a tree just over the Orange County line. It'd be another 25 years before that tree fell into his territorial jurisdiction. Horn was raised in Orange County, and he was raised in police work.
8: Uh, my dad was in law enforcement. And so we were talking this past weekend, and he asked me when I was going to retire. I told him if things worked out, possibly next April-ish, it looks like. And he said, when you retire, it'll be the first time since 1954 that there has not been a horn in law enforcement inside Orange County. So, what's that, 63 years? 63 years, the Horns have been in that kind of work. So, you know, you see it growing up. You've got relatives in law enforcement. My dad's in law enforcement. And, um, and so certainly that makes an impression.
3: It would more than make an impression. Tim Horn, a powerfully built man with a bald head and an inquisitor's gaze, started his career, as all lawmen do, on patrol. For 20 years, he worked his way through the ranks. He started working for investigations as a crime scene technician on the first day of 1997. Less than 20 years later, he'd be promoted to captain.
7: During his career working murder cases, Captain Horn has seen his fair share of slam dunks. He's also seen a few head scratchers. However, no one would dare accuse him of turning away from a tried-and-true mystery.
8: I've either had been the lead investigator on murder cases, especially if it's a whodunit that's more drawn out, I don't even know the number of actual murder cases that I've been the lead on, but it is a ton of them. And I've assisted on almost every other one. Unless there was some unusual circumstance where it was more of a closed and shut, a murder-suicide type scenario where it's not going to be prosecuted that, that I didn't get called on for in for, I would say I probably worked on 98% of the murder cases that have happened in, in our agency over the last 20 plus years. The vast majority of cases, the victims are murdered by someone they know, whether it's a husband or wife, an acquaintance. We've had several killings that were drug related through the years. They knew each other. They were in business, so to speak. It wasn't a, a boogeyman stranger. And I always joke and say the boogeyman. We've had very few cases where it was, quote, the boogeyman. That is just something that doesn't happen, fortunately, very often.
7: And then there's the Man mcbain murder case.
8: This case looked like something that Sherlock Holmes would want to investigate. It had that many angles. It had that many oddities. And so it was more than challenging. And so those are the kind of cases that draw your attention even more. The murder-suicide, I don't mean to make light of that. But those are not as challenging to solve as a case like the Man McBain.
3: To refresh, in February of 1971, two young lovers vanished after leaving a Valentine's dance. The next day, classmates found their car abandoned down a lover's lane. Two weeks later, Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain were discovered tied to a tree. They'd been strangled, then covered with leaves. The crime had never been solved and so far as the public knew, no suspects had ever been produced. For two years after the murder, the sleepy Piedmont of North Carolina lived on edge, waiting for a killer to emerge, or even worse, another victim to be discovered. Anything which might make sense of the tragedy, but in the waiting, heard only silence. Slowly, over the next four decades, the case seemed to disappear into dusty archives. It had largely been forgotten.
7: Until... 2010. That's when Tim Horn entered the picture. To say it was a long and fortuitous road putting the man McBain homicide on Captain Horn's radar would be an understatement.
3: It starts in 1998. Tim Horn still works crime scenes as a new detective and he catches a tough case. An unidentified young boy's body is found beneath a billboard alongside the highway in Mebane, North Carolina. That crime also remains unsolved and if you ask him, He still refers to it as one of the big three cases of his career. Obviously, someone else thinks so, because years later in 2010, he's approached by Katie Prince, an associate producer of a local true crime television show called North Carolina's Most Wanted, to assist on a reenactment. Captain Horn recognizes the value of working with the media, so he participates with the show. When they're finished, Katie Prince has ideas for another episode.
8: She told me she talked to some SBI agent, and to this day, I don't know who, who that agent was. But she said, hey, you know, thanks for your help you know, whatever episode they were working on. Can you give me any pointers, any tips, uh, leads to follow, any really good, interesting cases? And the guy told her, you know, a long time ago, there was the damnedest case that I was ever part of uh, back in Orange County. And he tells her about the Valentine's Day murder. So that is kind of like one track of what happened. At the same time this is occurring, uh, Sheriff Pendergrass comes to myself and Greg Stroud and wants us to go to a portion of the old jail that they're going to renovate. And they're going to make it into a magistrate's office. And he wants us to go up there because we do crime scene, both myself and Greg did crime scene, And he wants us to measure it and photograph it, sketch it out, use, you know, our little knowledge set so he can kind of get a handle on what it's going to take to renovate this place. So Greg and I go up there and just the standard old white office cardboard box. There's there's hundreds and hundreds of these boxes all around. It's just been long-term storage, you know. Just like what you can imagine, I mean an inch of dust on every lid. So we go in there, right in the middle of the room, there's one box the lid is off. And there are crime scene photographs in black and white, which caught my attention first, sitting right on top. So I go there and look, it's this case, and they're the crime scene photographs from the Man McBain murder. The photographs were laying on top. They were black and white. Uh, these were two young people, and it just seemed to be so senseless. And and even in looking at the photographs, uh, you see the 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 victims. You see the crime scene, the area it happened. You see how they were bound, and then and you couple that with the story he told and the Valentine's Day. It just it I guess it just. Uh, it was one of those type of cases that you couldn't really turn away from. There was always just more, more, more. You you had to know more information. And so I wanted at that point to get the case file and actually read it. Well, now fast forward to Katie Prince again. She talked to the SBI agent and she called me. Tim, do you know anything about a case from the 70s, and as soon as she said it, I knew which one she was talking about. She said, the man McBain. I said, crazy thing, Katie. I said, just a couple weeks ago I was at the jail and I found the case file. We were trying to find who would be the most appropriate person for her to talk to to get the details that was the most up to speed. And there really wasn't anybody. And so we were in negotiations. To Who's going to do the interview? Who's going to talk? What are we going to do with the case? And all of a sudden, uh, North Carolina's Most Wanted kind of folded up. They stopped production. So the show is over. Katie Prince is gone. It just kind of falls by the wayside.
3: Was this a case you had ever heard about before?
8: Never. Never heard about it. And again, um, so many... Different individuals in law enforcement had had come and retired, went to a different agency. However, you want to look at it, just weren't here any longer, and so it was in that age bracket that there was no one left here at the agency that that knew much about it. And if there's if there's one person that that was there, you know, that can tell the story, it kind of it can rekindle things to a degree. But once you break that connection and there's no one left that was actually there,
3: it's much more difficult. Let this sink in a minute. Pat and Jesse disappear in February of 1971. By nearly all accounts, the ink dried up on the story within the year. No new leads. Occasionally, the mayor of Sanford or the governor would announce an increase in a reward offered, but for all intents and purposes, so far as the public's concerned, The Valentine's Day murders are something left to rumor and memory, to ghost stories. And who can blame them? Without a viable suspect, who wants to be reminded that something like this can happen to good, honest people?
7: The 80s, the 90s, 9-11. Another decade blows on past. And then 2010 comes, and in a matter of weeks, Katie Prince puts a bug in investigator Tim Horn's ear just about the time he finds a dusty old box in a jailhouse. And then, one night.
8: I'm working, I'm working night shift. And I come in, and one of my co-workers, we have little cubicles in the investigation division. I'm on one side of the room, he's all the way at the other side of the room. And it was after 5 o'clock, but for whatever reason, he was working late. And I hear him talking through the cubicle because everyone else is gone. And he says... What? A murder case? From 1971? And I spoke up. I said, hey, Tony, I know something about that. He said, I've got this lady on the phone wants to talk about one of her relatives was murdered in 71. And I said, I know something about that case. I said, send it to me. And so he transfers the call, and I get the call, and it's Carol Spivey.
3: Carol Spivey. Actually, Carolyn. Used to be Carolyn Signer, Patricia Mann's cousin and best friend from Samford. You'll have to forgive Captain Horn. For whatever reason, he's taken to calling Carolyn Carol and has done so for the past seven years. Don't worry, she loves it. But this moment in time would forge a friendship, a partnership, if you will, that was over four decades in the making. For years and years and years, Carolyn Spivey has been discouraged from talking about the murders. Her family kept her in the dark about the few details they had been given. Any contact they had with law enforcement did nothing to shed light on anything. No answers, only more questions.
1: Well, people would call us all the time. I had a policeman call me one time, and there was a serial killer in Florida who was confessing, and he wanted details. So I had to relive it and give him all these details so he could ask them those questions. Just people uh, just come up to me, I heard this, I heard that. So the last one, I think, well, so that, To Katie, that upset me, but I guess what really put me over was we got another call, and it was in 2011, and it was a call from, um, or you got the call, that someone had um, come to the courthouse in Pittsburgh asking for Jesse and Pat's, Jesse's gift certificate and they thought that was very strange. And um, that they had heard that someone, this person told the clerk at the courthouse that someone on their deathbed had confessed to the murder. So whenever I hear a rumor, I always feel like I've got to run it down. They told a friend that they knew knew David and that really put me over the top. And I said, this has got to stop. I said, I cannot spend my life with all these rumors she was a great person she did nothing wrong because you know there's every rumor in the world that uh, maybe she was having an affair with somebody or maybe she did something that's when I called Tim
8: I liked her she was very down to earth she was open and honest she started telling me what she knew uh, what the family's opinions about what happened. We really start going from, from square one. But you can you can hear the pain in her voice. And when she talks about uh, Patricia, you clearly could tell that she loved her. It was somebody she cared about. You want to do good for the victim. You want to bring someone to justice that committed this kind of crime. Because I saw the crime scene pictures and they were pretty bad. And they were young. Murder or tragedies, they're always bad, but it just, for some reason, the younger the victims are, the more impact. These people were so young, newly engaged, it has all the hallmarks of a book. Kara was very easy to talk to, and I'm a fairly open uh, person. And so we just kind of went back and forth. I told her I'd seen the case file, I had looked at it, you know, we talked about it. She said, well, try to try to help me out, try to help the family out if you can, let us know. Uh, what the sheriff says, if he'll allow you to open it back up. And again, I asked the sheriff, and he, he agreed. So um, that was just the beginning of a, a long friendship with Carol. To this day, we're still good friends. But it started there.
3: So with the sheriff's permission and the family's blessing, Tim Horn reopens the Man mcbain double homicide. It becomes less of a side project and more of an obsession. As an investigator in the investigation division, Tim's got his usual caseload with normal duties. Crime in Orange County won't wait for a decades-old cold case. So he works on it after hours or during whatever time he can carve out for himself.
7: But that will be far from the greatest obstacle. At this time, in 2010, it's been nearly 40 years since Pat and Jesse were found brutally murdered just over the Orange County line. Time is rarely friendly to the homicide investigator. With an ever-narrowing list of original detectives who worked the case due to retirement or death, There really is only one source for investigator Tim Horn to get a handle on the case. That box from the jailhouse attic. The one with the crime scene photos.
8: It's a mess. I mean, you're talking about so many years, 40 plus years Rubber bands have dry rotted and popped off of files. Uh, there were very few paper clips. Most things, uh, you could see the remnants of rubber bands in the bottom. I don't know how many times this box had been picked up or moved, but it wouldn't have been any worse if you had literally just thrown it each page at one time, you know, just the whole stack up in the air and let it fall down and gather it and put it in the box. That's what it was like. It took a long time to kind of get it back in an order that you could read it and it was pretty frustrating because you would read a page and it was so interesting, and then you wouldn't have the next page in sequence. And you would have to uh, kind of look at the last word on the page and then look for what sounded to be consistent you know, with the first word on, on another page. And sometimes there were a few pages off, and sometimes it, it's like putting together a puzzle. You had to find that matching piece, and it took a long time. It took a long time. So we do that to get it back in some kind of order to read whenever I had time to do it. And so I started to get the file uh, back in order. Now, about this time, we have a, another investigator, Dawn Hunter, and Dawn agrees to, to help. So Dawn started here in 2010. She was an investigator here, but as this thing starts to spin up, I realized, hey, it's going to be more than I can handle by myself. I need more resources. So Dawn Hunter started helping me. As we go through it, we made a copy, We're trying to make like a master copy of what we had initially. And I would go home, and I'd start reading it, and you couldn't put it down. It was like a novel that you're really interested in. And I would call her, and I'd be like, look, I'm on page 88. What page are you on? And I was making notes, and she was making highlights, and, you know, I was getting messages go to this page or I just saw this and and we did that for our part but we realized there was a lot of holes that we didn't have the information from and so we we started a little cheat sheet uh, every time we came to an officer's name we wrote it down ultimately we went back to everyone that we could find agency wise and try to get the reports or find the files there was nobody left around that was there where is this case file
3: As investigator Horn makes his way through the box and uncovers more and more clues, his partner Dawn Hunter isn't the only person he calls with his discoveries. For the first time in 40 years, Carolyn Spivey gets new details about the murder of her cousin and best friend.
1: I told Tim it was like I was getting therapy because it was the best therapy I could have ever. I didn't realize it or or maybe I could have made myself go through it before I did. But it was like the best therapy ever because and Tim was so wonderful so every time he discovered something he kept me informed because he understood what I said was how horrible it was that we were never informed of anything and how little we knew and it made me upset that someone a perfect stranger like Katie would know all this stuff and how did she find out and we couldn't find out so that upset me And so Tim always kept me informed, so he would always, every time he'd discover anything or read something or find something, he would call me and tell me. And um, so that was just wonderful and we would spend hours, I mean he would call me and we would talk a couple, two or three hours in the evenings. Then when he got into more of the gruesome details, actually how they died and everything, he would tell me a little bit and not the whole story. So he did it perfectly because it allowed me to absorb a little bit and a little bit and a little bit till I finally got the whole thing and not freak out about it. And now I feel real empowered because I know as much as most anybody knows. And I feel like anybody that comes to me now and tells me they've heard this or that, I can say, Well, no, it didn't happen that way. This is what happened, or not tell them anything. But I just feel more empowered now.
8: probably takes about six months to get the file to find all of our evidence associated with the box because there was evidence, uh, the rope and such, and there was also the paper documentation. To get that, to get it organized, make ourselves copies to start contacting the other agencies because it's not the request these other agencies are used to hearing every day. Oh, by the way, can you go in the longest of the long-term storage facilities that you have? No one wants to stop what they're doing and go look for this needle in the haystack. We put in requests, but we didn't necessarily get responses from other agencies the next day. They did eventually get back to us, but you've always heard it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's, hey... Do me a favor. You know, rattle somebody's cage, beg, borrow, do what you got to do. We know that we have the most comprehensive file. Is it totally complete? No. There are pieces there that, that were lost to time that we'll never get back. In particular, in Durham, there was a storage facility that had part of this stuff. And the roof collapsed. There was water damage. I don't know to what extent it happened. But nonetheless, some of this stuff was lost. You can't get it back. So we have... The most comprehensive file, but by no means is it every piece probably that that they originally had in 71. As I started going through it, I think this is probably accurate for Dawn Hunter as well. They have a number of different suspects. And as they introduce each suspect and you start reading, there's kind of like, aha, that's got to be the guilty person. And so in your mind, to a degree, you're a little satisfied, at least with that. And then you read further, and they name another suspect, and you you hear what they have against him, and it's like, I thought the first guy did it, but you know what? I think the second guy is now our man. And it was like that for a number uh, of the suspects early on. Now, this is before you get to all the evidence or how they were eliminated. Every chapter so to speak that you get into this case file you start to form an opinion that this is probably the 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 suspect and then that just keeps getting changed and then when you look at the photograph and you see one thing and you unfocus your eyes and you see a totally different um, thing is very similar I mean you read this once and you pick out a particular suspect you read it again you see something totally different can that be frustrating I I guess it can be frustrating but it just keeps you going then going through the case file as you start reading how certain certain suspects were eliminated you feel less confident that they were involved and in doing that we ended up with basically a primary and a secondary suspect we have two suspects one's living one's deceased one lives in Orange County in our jurisdiction and that happens you know, to be our our number one suspect.
3: Now is probably a good time to tell you how we got involved. Let's pause for just a second to move forward to 2016. If you wanted to know more about this case, where would be the first place you look? Google, of course. But Google only takes you to a handful of local news articles, all a result from investigator Tim Horn reopening the case. There's a video from local television station WRAL, a couple of quotes, They all seem to tease some of the most sensational aspects of the case. The last living suspect and how he's a doctor. The phone call he made in the middle of the night to Jesse McBain's mother. The fact that Pat and Jesse had most likely been tortured. And that's
7: it. What little there is to be found on the Internet would not exist had Tim Horn not reopened the case. None of the lurid top ten articles or Reddit board posts. None of it. It simply would have disappeared. Just more stories. Told by townies about a Durham from long ago.
3: When we first met with Captain Horn and Carolyn Spivey, they wished us the best of luck with our investigation, but ultimately passed. They believed there was little to be accomplished. Not to be deterred, we launched our own investigation. After scouring the local libraries for anything and everything to do with the case, we began to compile our own list of suspects. It wasn't easy. Interviews were next to impossible as many of the people involved with the case had died over the past 46 years. And to even ask questions about someone who's not been named as a suspect put us at risk of a libel lawsuit. But after three months of digging and digging and digging, we asked Captain Horn for one more meeting before giving up.
7: Before the meeting, we wrote an analysis on who we believed to be responsible for the deaths of Pat and Jesse. We laid out our evidence with our suspect's name at the top of the page. Tim met us for coffee. He took one look at the name typed at the top of the first page, then set it back to the table. He put his coffee cup on top of it. He talked for 10-15 more minutes about various aspects of his personal investigation, then wished us well. That looked like a premature end to the story we wanted to tell. We weren't 10 minutes down the road before he called us on his cell phone and asked us to come in the next day. He said we'd have to meet with the lawyer for the sheriff's office, and then we could take a look inside the
3: case file. As we mentioned before, what we will be presenting here has never been disclosed to the public. This is the first time any of this evidence has been revealed. But we feel it is important that we offer, if nothing else, a reliable record to preserve what facts are known, help uncover new ones, and differentiate substantive evidence from rumor and conjecture.
7: As we sat in the interrogation room at the Orange County Sheriff's Office, we could hardly contain ourselves as Captain Horn lugged in the case file. The box. He yanked open the lid and then, one by one, pulled each folder, color-coordinated and bulldog-clipped, nowhere near the state of disorganization by which he had found it. He laid each item, the crime scene photos, the autopsy reports, the taped interviews, across the small table, finally reaching the most recent addition, our analysis of the living suspect.
3: Over the course of 46 years, countless agents, officers, and detectives from over a half a dozen law enforcement agencies have worked the Mann-McBain homicide. Of course, there was a first. That distinction fell to a new detective, M.T. Tim Bowers. Bowers joined the Durham Police Department in October of 1965, but didn't transfer to investigations until January of 1971. Within a month, he would receive his first official case a missing persons, when students at the Watts Training School for Nurses reported that their classmate and her boyfriend didn't return from parking after a Valentine's dance.
7: Unfortunately, Bowers represents one of the major hurdles we would experience time and again in researching a case that's nearly a half-century old, which is that we are unable to interview him for this story. We'll explain that in detail later in the episode, but in the meantime, we've had to make do by speaking to folks who knew him. One of those men is retired Durham Police Captain Johnny Knight. Johnny's a neighbor of mine who started on the force in 1970, one year before the man McBain, and knew Tim Bowers well.
4: And immediately when you first see Tim, your first impression is that's a big man. He he was just uh, about six foot tall, but he was, his chest probably was 52 or three inches, and his arms were big as most people's waist. But according to his size, his dominion was opposite. He was very slow talking very low-key, not abusive, could be if he needed to be, but he didn't need to be, he used to be. But Tim was always the one to give people the benefit of the doubt, try to resolve things uh, yeah. without going to jail, <laughs> but he could give them a swift ride to jail if he needed it. Uh, he did work on the case of uh, uh, the two deceased that were found in Orange County, he got it as a missing person because uh, he was a proudly new detective. <coughs> As a result of that, he worked on that forever, and he he never resolved it physically, but he also never resolved it in his mind because he always wanted to solve that because it was one that he just wanted to make sure he got got solved, but unfortunately, never did happen.
8: Tim was a very new investigator, and it was his first case. I've been told it was his very first case. I don't have a lot of information other than. Some people felt like just because he was so green, so new at this, that it should have gone to a more um, experienced investigator. But it's also, and I know this firsthand, it's not uncommon to give a new investigator a big case and other people assist and kind of shadow him in that because fortunately you don't have homicides all the time. I know there are areas of the world that you do, but here you do not. And so... You don't know how long it's going to be before there's another one, and of all the of all the investigations I've been involved in, robberies, rapes, theft, you name it, just just the whole spectrum. A homicide investigation usually is a type of investigation that you use what you've learned in all the other cases. You put it all together, you know, because you're going to be doing interviews, you're going to be doing a lot of search warrants, you're going to be um, using a lot of forensics. In other cases, you may use one or sometimes two or three of the, of the areas that you, you have gained knowledge in, but no doubt homicide will pull all those together. So for that reason, it's not uncommon to give a new investigator homicide, but you're gonna have someone um, assigned, a senior officer that's been there and done that, assigned to make sure it's done right and nothing, nothing gets left out. And I don't know to what degree involvement others may have had at Durham Police. I'm not going to speak to that. Uh, Just because it wasn't necessarily written down doesn't mean it didn't happen. I know that it would be, from a supervisor's point of view, it would be unheard of to assign a new officer this and give him no direction or supervision at all. That's just required. But I really don't have all the details.
3: In this case, Bauer's supervisor was Lieutenant R.G. Dick Morris. Morris is deceased, so he's not here to speak for himself. In the next episode, we'll have a bit more on Dick Morris, but what we found out is that it was, and still is, standard practice in the Durham Criminal Investigation Division to assign cases on a first-come, first-served basis. It was confirmed by Durham PD that each detective receives supervision and assistance on every case, regardless of their length of tenure. We have no reason to believe any different during the Mann-McBain investigation.
7: However, one person had unique insight to the inner workings of Lieutenant Morris and Detective Bowers. Former journalist Cornelia Olive grew up in Sanford with Patricia Mann and Carolyn Spivey. She knew their families and counted them as friends. Cornelia was, and still is, a fireball. We met for lunch at Davison Steaks in Sanford, where she'd recently retired as mayor. When I told her how close I lived to the murder scene, she said, You think about this case every day, don't you? I nodded and told her, yes, ma'am, I did. She smiled a kind smile, then said, so it's got you, don't it?
3: Cornelia got her start writing an interior decorating column in the Sanford newspaper. It took her no time to penetrate the boys' club of 1960s journalism, and she threw enough elbows to land herself on the masthead of the Durham Herald. She was also the first reporter to hear about the disappearance of Pat and Jesse.
9: I was covering the county beat. I covered the beat like I was taught to cover it in Sanford as a rookie reporter. That's not the way journalism students were necessarily taught to... To cover something, but they were not as ambitious as I was because I wanted to, I wanted my byline. So I walked my beat every day and got to be friends with the different department heads and whoever I needed for information. So when an opportunity came for me to be the top city reporter, I was not offered that. I said, I want to know why, because I've earned it. That was the best beat. They said, Well, nobody's ever gotten so much out of county, so we need you here and I said, Well, that should be my choice. If I've done a good job there ought to be able to have a say in where I stay or where I go. It turned out that I did eventually become the city beat reporter and started doing desk work then and that's why I was working the night that uh, Tim Bowers and his superior, Dick Mars came into the newsroom, and the, the first thing they said was that normally they would not have started an investigation as quickly as they did, but that they had spoken with some people in Sanford, and that they had talked to some people at Watts Hospital Nursing School, who had told them how dependable and how reliable this young couple was. They said then that they feared foul play, but were quick to add, but we're not saying that. They have very concerned families, and we don't want to say that publicly. When they started explaining who it was, it nearly knocked me out, because I knew so much about the Mann family and what a fine family they were.
3: The frustration mounted for Cornelia, and who could blame her? To have known the family, to have that insight into the early parts of the investigation, to be so dialed in at the Durham newspaper, yet still, she could generate no more leads than anyone else in the Bull City. Despite all the interviews, all the investigations, neither Cornelia, nor Tim Bowers, nor Dick Morris could develop a single clue, a single lead which might answer the mounting questions piling up at the feet of what, at the time, appeared to be a rather sensational missing persons case.
9: There was no pattern of any sort that anybody could identify. I think everybody started looking sort of in a radius to see who may be suspicious. And I do know that uh, Tim and Dick told me over time that they were investigating and interviewing people who they were just the nth degree. They were going so far afield, but they were hoping that somebody had some information they could share
3: you remember getting the call that their bodies had been found, what that was like.
9: Yeah. It was like a death
3: in my family.
9: Because I knew the heartache it was going to cause everybody. I guess it was very difficult for me to ever assume the worst. I just kept hoping that for good news, but the more days that passed, um... The hope became fleeting, but it was, um, but it was Dick Morris who called me. He asked me if I wanted to come out there, and I said, No, I can't, I can't do that. I've been on raids of liquor steals, and, and I've been riding with the, the rescue squad when they picked up dead people, and I've done all sorts of stuff. But when you know the people, it just changes the complexion of everything. There was no way I could envision anything pretty about it. I didn't want that to be my last image of that.
3: It wouldn't be a pretty image. The autopsy of Jesse McBain began at 7.15 on February 25th, 1971, more than six hours after his body had been discovered. His personal effects included a wallet with $4.63, his car key, his Pittsburgh High School ring, and a self-winding watch, which had stopped at 5 minutes to 12 on a date marked as the 14th. His hands were tied with a hemp rope, and another piece of that same rope had formed a ligature around the neck. Careful examination of the body revealed a deep groove caused by the rope on the neck, and this was associated
10: chest, there was a superficial laceration measuring about 5 millimeters in diameter just medial to the left nipple. Elsewhere on the body, there were superficial abrasions and areas of skin slippage. There were no significant internal injuries. There was no natural Microscopic disease. examination was reddish-brown mud sticking to the undersurface of the shoes of the decedent. And this was the same type as was seen on the dirt road about 20 to 25 feet from where the body was These packed. facts indicate the decedent was probably made to walk on the dirt road to the scene of death. It appears that after taking him to the scene, the decedent's hands were tied up at the wrists and the body tied to the trunk of the tree. Single penetrating injury to the chest, without doubt non-fatal, might have been caused by a sharp instrument such as an ice pick or a screwdriver. This injury was likely post-mortem. No evidence to indicate sexual assault. Toxicological analysis reveals no alcohol, other volatiles, or barbiturates in the blood. In final summary, the cause of death in this case was strangulation by ligature, and the manner of death was homicide.
7: Jesse McBain's autopsy ended at 11 p.m., whereby they immediately began the examination of Patricia Mann. The rope affixed to her neck was cut away on the left side so as to preserve the double knot at her throat for evidence. When done so, they found a thin necklace around her neck. Another rope also tied her two wrists. She wore a silver bracelet and ring with a small diamond. She was fully clothed in a woolen dress, mainly a pale white.
10: Under surface of the left side of the jaw, the pressure and the pull of the rope had caused laceration of the skin. On the chest, there were three puncture holes, no more than a half inch in depth. Believed to have been committed post-mortem, none of these wounds was deep enough to perforate the chest wall. Internally, the liver showed a tear about a half inch in length and extending to the depth of about one inch. Situated on the interior surface of the left lobe, also there was a contusion of soft tissues on the right side of the spine just above the diaphragm. This appeared to be the source of the blood, about 25, tied to a tree with a rope, and the entire body, except the left leg and thigh, and both feet with shoes on, was covered completely with leaves. The exposed areas revealed the signs of decomposition and mummification of the fingers of the hand. As Eden's clothes, including the underpants, were in position. There was no evidence of injury to the external and internal genitalia. These facts indicate there was probably no sexual assault on this individual. Final summary, the cause of death in this case was strangulation by ligature, and the manner of death was homicide.
7: At 1 a.m., 12 hours after her body had been discovered, Patricia Mann's autopsy was concluded.
8: It still happens today. When you go into a crime scene, the longer you're there, the more you learn and, and kind of paints a picture. But when something initially happens, I mean, within moments, your mind starts to work. You're trying to put two and two together and make something of it. What kind of crime do I have? Is this a robbery? You know, who's known for robberies? Who lives in this area? Uh, is the person beaten? Are they shot? Are they stabbed? Who has a history of always carrying a gun? I mean, you, you're randomly just, in your mind, spinning up possible ideas. So in this case, the same thing happened. We've had a horrible crime, and so the police are doing the same thing. And they try to think who, who in their opinion, is capable of, has means, may have a motive, who fits the bill. And when the public finds out about the crime, then you start getting a bunch of calls because they all have opinions too. And you've got to pay attention because it may be the suspect. That's how you get these initial huge list of people that you have to work through. And just like with a lot of crimes, a lot of times the killer is on the list. It's not uncommon for someone to get it right. So you have to go through it. I mean, how many serial killers in the u s were on someone's list, and they just for whatever reason they were eliminated or weren't taken seriously, or you get the list and then of course, there's so much in the beginning of an investigation like this it's hard to handle it's hard to manage you've got a lot of manpower and and you gotta give directions the initial grab is is while you have the opportunity to get as much evidence, get as much interviews, get as many names as you can, you can sift through it later as time permits, get what you can get, get it while the is good. It's kinda like that. And it's only after when you start trying to evaluate it, and what's important, who's on this list, that, oh, well, they have an alibi. Uh, you wanna eliminate people as quickly as you can so you can move on and, and tighten the list because if the killer's out there, hey, they may kill someone else. You don't wanna eliminate somebody too quickly. You wanna give it due diligence, but you wanna pay attention to the list. And in this case they had a lot of people. And talking to some of the officers, there were a lot of people that really never made it onto the official list. They were kind of discredited early on. You know, people would call in. Uh, John Doe, suspicious, oh well, I don't think John Doe's involved in this and, and so people were eliminated, you know, throughout the investigation, but we never really had a chance to to do that, and so we have to rely on the notes and the evidence and how they were eliminated.
3: The tree where Pat and Jesse were found murdered stood at the end of an unpaved cul-de-sac along Howe Street in Durham. Across that cul-de-sac sat the Carolina Trailer Park, a collection of about 30 or so mobile homes. Inevitably, these would be the first persons interviewed. One of the first names to develop from these interviews would be Vaden Newcomb. From all accounts, Newcomb appeared a likely suspect. As a resident of the trailer park, He had been admonished for peeping. He worked in Durham as a gravedigger for the Howerton Bryan Funeral Home and had recently bought a large supply of rope for work. One of his many duties included securing tents for internment services, and he had a vast knowledge of knots. A World War II veteran, he suffered the occasional mental breakdown and had been hospitalized at the VA for psychological problems. He quit his job at the funeral home the day after Pat and Jesse went missing, then fell prone to fits of silence. One of the neighbors spotted him driving late at night down the unpaved road where the bodies had been found.
7: A known local criminal named Henry Aaron Tatum was being questioned in a similar murder in which a man, Danny Love, had been handcuffed to a tree and then shot. Tatum was the number one suspect in two murders, but spoke loud amongst associates that they'd soon have him for four. Who were the other
3: two? And authorities still wanted to know who made that mysterious phone call to the ER at Watts shortly after Pat and Jesse went missing. Remember that one? Someone claiming to be A.N. McBain, Jesse's father, called to inquire on the well being of the missing couple, stating he had feared they'd been in an auto accident. Police carried the McBain patriarch in for questioning, but the old man was too heartbroken over the death of his son and could provide little detail. Still, who made that call? Someone
7: claimed to have information about a satanic cult in Durham who celebrated four feast days throughout the calendar. On these days, They were reported to require the sacrifice of innocent blood. One of those days, according to a professor at Duke who associated with the cult, was February 12th.
3: Bowers and Morris picked up rumblings. A boy in Pittsburgh who took issue with Jesse over a
7: dent in his car.
3: A serial killer in Florida. Two boys from the dance who had escorted a pair of student nurses. Law enforcement questioned known homosexuals for whatever reason. A
7: man facing a long stint in the stir for safe-cracking told a fantastic three-month-long saga which implicated Durham's notorious motorcycle gang, the Stormtroopers.
3: The suspect pool only grew deeper. Despite being a relatively new investigator, Tim Bowers did not hesitate to pull out all the stops. As time passed after the discovery of the bodies, Bowers understood the need to think outside the box to act outside convention. One of the ways he achieved this was to contact an FBI profiler.
7: James A. Brussel achieved a quiet notoriety during his career in crime fighting. Between 1940 and 1956, a serial bomber terrorized New York City. After a campaign which included bombs planted in Radio City Music Hall, Penn Station, and Grand Central Terminal, among other public locales, Dr. Brussel, serving as New York State's Assistant Commissioner of Mental Hygiene, offered a profile after studying photographs of the crime scenes and letters written by the bomber to the media. Russell correctly predicted that the bomber would be heavy, middle-aged, and unmarried, believed he would be living with a sibling in Connecticut, and most likely a Roman Catholic, a skilled mechanic, and upon the offender's discovery, he will be wearing a double-breasted suit, buttoned, This led the police to the door of George Metesky in Waterbury, a heavy, single Catholic dressed in a double-breasted suit, fully buttoned.
3: His career also led the Boston police to arrest Albert DeSalvo, also known as the Boston Strangler. That, and his work with other law enforcement agencies, led to a visit from Detective Tim Bowers at Brussels' New York City apartment. The two men spent five hours poring over the case file and crime scene photos. The next step was to have the profile of Pat and Jesse's murderer Printed in newspapers across North Carolina.
2: The killer will be an athletic man between 25 and 40 years. Paranoid, old. out to cleanse the world. This was a grudge slaying. The killer is a loner, a neat, precise man with an average or above average education. He will be clean shaven, have no criminal record, an excellent work record, he will not wear flashy clothes. He appears to conduct himself properly. He may have suffered from childhood rejection by he his considers mother. Consider[s] himself above other persons and capable of judging. The killer would have acted alone, would have taken no unnecessary risks, and would have known the neighborhood of the slain's well. The killer would also have most likely been the man who called the emergency room on the night the couple disappeared. This was his way of displaying his cleverness, as if to say, look at me, look at what I have done.
3: This would be a good time to note that until this moment, the common consensus among investigators is that the crime had to have involved two people. One of the biggest mysteries in this case is how anyone, no less two anyone's, could have managed Pat and Jesse from their car and tied them to a tree with no outward signs of struggle. Even the medical examiner who had performed their autopsies believed this to be the work of two people. Brussels would be the first man to propose that this was the work of a solitary assailant. But more on that in future episodes.
7: In the meantime, the FBI profiler would not be the only unconventional tactic employed by young investigator Tim Bowers. Much like his 21st century counterpart, Tim Horn, Bowers understood the importance of the media. More importantly, the importance of a dedicated, committed reporter. Lucky for him, an eager and headstrong Durham Herald journalist could match his ambition.
9: Well, I started dating Ken. And um, when we first started dating, that's just about all we talked about. But sometimes I know he, he told me more than was probably prudent. I guess you don't see that many women who are that... Hungry for crime information, and this was something that was near and dear to his heart, too. He and Dick really took this seriously. And two, they could use me as their avenue to get things out. I was certainly comfortable with that trade, because they gave me information for an outlet to the paper. So that was a compatible situation.
3: While Cornelia printed many of those information exchanges beneath her byline, there were more than a few stories that she was never able to share with the public. Until now.
9: I guess one of the things that touched me as far as this not being a, a regular investigation was when Tim told me that there was, a I don't know if he was a parapsychologist or what, in New York who had been involved in the solution of some crimes there. And they were pretty big cases, too. But the fella he told me about, I never reported because I don't know whether it was because it was funded a certain way by the government or what. But at any rate, what he told me, and Dick Morris confirmed, was that this fella came to, to Durham. His name was um, something like Dichlor. And when he came to Durham, what Tim and Dick had told me was that when they picked him up at the airport, that they took him to Watts Nursing School. And that from there, he led them along different areas. And that they ended up at the murder scene. And he was given the directions as to where to go. And um, there was one of the um, suspects who... He went straight to his office. That, was, that really gave them hope that they were encouraged that this was going to materialize. And he was and still is regarded as a suspect.
3: This incident is documented in the case file. We've seen it. It's fantastic. Marion B. Dykeshorn was a well-regarded international parapsychologist or, as his passport says, clairvoyant. The extent of what crimes he's helped solve may never be known due to his insistence on privacy. But if there is any indication of his influence, he was buried in 2011 with a badge he had been awarded from the Raleigh Police Department.
7: According to the case file, Dykeshorn took Detective Bowers and assistant to the district attorney Nicholas Smith from the crime scene on a long, meandering drive through North Durham. This drive ended in the doctor's parking lot at Watts Hospital. He then escorted them to the doctor's entrance, after which he returned them to the police station to deliver his thoughts on what happened. The next
3: page of the case file is missing. For Tim Bowers and Dick Morris, this was more than just a case. As Johnny Knight said in the earlier interview, as many former Durham cops that knew Tim Bowers have said, this case continued to haunt him, to nag at him. Cornelia, to whom he'd briefly been married, remembers it vividly.
9: I don't know if they got this involved in other cases, but they, the two of them, there was no clue too little for them to pursue. They went after everything like it was the next top topic. I think Dick was was heavily into it, but I think Tim was obsessed with it. He was, um, uh, he talked about it almost all the time. And, um, when I would find anything out and share that with him, they were just extremely aggressive. And um, and I appreciated it so much because I didn't feel like anybody else who was in Durham was was as concerned about this. And I knew I was obsessed with it. I, I just couldn't help it. Because um, I just want something done.
3: Obviously... Tim Bowers did not solve the Man mcbain homicide by the time he left the Durham Police Department in 1977. After a brief stint in license and theft, which is now a division of the DMV, Bowers returned to Durham Police until he retired in July of 1994. However, he never left the case behind. He took his files and notes with him and continued to investigate well into retirement.
7: Forty years later, when Tim Horn of the Orange County Sheriff's Office takes on the mantle of investigating Pat and Jesse's murder, it's only natural he'd want to consult with the first detectives assigned a case, the men who'd spent more time and resources investigating it, the badges whose career had been defined by this single case. However, it would not be as simple as that.
3: Dick Morris died decades before Horn found the box in the dusty jailhouse addict. As for his protege?
8: And then, of course, I talked to Tim Bowers. He's had some medical issues. Uh, his recollection... Uh, was limited uh, based on his medical condition. Um, he was able to discuss certain aspects of it, but other aspects were not as clear to him. Myself, an SBI agent, went down fairly close to Beaufort to a nursing home. Tim had had a stroke, and I don't know what the ultimate outcome of that was, but this was like a rehabilitation nursing home type facility with some advanced care. And so we went down there and, and had a little conference room that allowed him to come in and talk to us. And and he seemed honestly just happy to have visitors, period. But certainly fellow officers, he, he you know, was, was happy to talk to us and wanted to discuss things. But certain questions he gave us answers to and then we would ask, or I would ask additional questions on another topic or subject and I wouldn't always get the appropriate responses, you know, he he seemed to be giving the responses uh, for the most part regardless of question the same the same response. So uh, based on the stroke and and his condition, you know, you had to kind of evaluate the information he was giving you. As we started asking questions, you know, a number of questions and we started getting the same response for each one or same general response, just seemed like the the medical condition at this point was not, he was not well enough to, or to, to be able to actively help us with the case.
3: Despite Tim Bauer's debilitating condition, he still manages to provide Tim Horn with one more piece to the ever-expanding puzzle.
8: His, his wife uh, allowed us to have his personal file, he had kept a personal file on this case and and we were able to go through that file. Some of it we already had in other documentation and other things uh, we had not seen. There were some photographs. There was a picture of, a, I'm going a, to a describe it as a shank, a small uh, handheld, um, slightly edged type of handmade tool had electrical tape wrapped around it. And we had seen this actually photographed, at the ME's office because the ME's would always have, as part of their photographs, it was document, documented documented uh, ME, autopsies, certain numbers, and it was consistent with uh, Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. And we didn't really have any explanation of what that photograph was. Now, they had some postmortem mortem injuries uh, where they had been poked or stabbed in the chest and upper torso, presumably to, to make sure they were deceased. They weren't fatal wounds, but they would have made someone cry out in pain uh, if they were still alive, and so we felt like the suspect didn't want to leave a living uh, witness that could, you know, tell on him, and so he was checking, probing to make sure they were deceased. So we got their autopsy and got photographs, and boom, we've got a picture of this shank. No explanation, and nobody knew anything about it, so we find that shank in his personal box. And we did learn that... At least to the police community, it was, it, was, uh, it was released that they had some post-mortem injuries consistent with some kind of edged weapon. The story is, or was to me, that um, some kid was stopped in Wake County. Young kid stopped for some kind of traffic violation and had it in the car. And some officer thought it was important enough and had seen this information, and said, "Hey, this could be the the thing. I'll I'll just send this to them, and maybe they can match it up." And so, uh, it was sent to Tim Bowers, and he took it to the ME, and they photographed it, so we were able to 100% match it up. But had we not found that in Tim's box, we would always wonder.
9: Carolyn, called me in ASME five if I would be willing to go and talk to Tim Horn. And, um, and I said, sure, I'll do anything that would help the situation at all. And um, I said, but I don't know that I remember that much, but because it's been a long, long time, it's been decades, and shoot, I'm 77. I don't, I don't remember stuff I used to remember. And two, I've, having been a reporter as long as I was, I didn't want to contribute bad information. Because my memory was flawed. But as it turned out, Tim and what was the woman? Dawn. Dawn. Tim and Dawn had, I mean, it was just like uh, shades of when I was working on it before. They were that rabid. I didn't think there was anybody who would be that, that driven as, as we had been. And lo and behold, they were. They're dogged. And absolutely. They're so dogged. I was, I just loved, um, Talking to them and you know, what happens is is that they inspired my memory on things I, I didn't think were pertinent that I thought I forgot and understandably been a lot of years. But uh, when they started talking about uh, what they were doing and what they were, the steps they had taken, I I just couldn't have been more pleased to hear it because there was a method to their madness. They were methodical. They were plotting. I I just thought there is some, some life here and they're gonna be able to continue where it was stopped before.
8: If this case had been solved, Tim Bowers would have been the best investigator there ever was. And Dick Morris, the supervisor, this would be a genius move on his part. It's easy to play the armchair quarterback, so I'm the supervisor of the criminal division here, but I started as a rank and file and worked my way all the way up over 20 years. I had my first homicide assigned to me actually two weeks after I became an investigator. And at the time I was like, you know, Jesus, am I ready for this? You know, I'm brand new, I'm still kind of in training, that kind of stuff. But I learned so much that it really, I couldn't appreciate how much it helped me out then. Reflecting back on it now, it was the right move. Same thing here, it, it, you can't solve every homicide. I don't care who you are or or what agency you work for. You just don't always get the breaks. But if you don't solve it, you're always gonna be criticized no matter how hard you worked at it. So I'm not gonna say that Durham didn't give it due diligence because not everything that was done was written down. And that sounds just crazy, but back in 1971, you can't. You got to look at law enforcement of how it was and what the norms were back then and don't judge it against today's rules and regulations. And when you do that, it's much more favorable.
3: Captain Horn is right. There's little point in judging the law enforcement of yesterday against the law enforcement of today. The differences between the two are staggering, mostly due to technology. Think about what they didn't have back then, cell phones or DNA. As Carolyn pointed out in the last episode, most everyone communicated through letters. Communication was much more difficult in 1971.
7: However, when talking with Cornelia Olive, former newspaper woman, former wife and lover of Detective Bowers, former mayor of Sanford, she uncovered perhaps another issue that impeded the best efforts of law enforcement back in 1971.
9: Well, I guess there was fault on everybody's side, but from my experience being, I guess, a peripheral character in this. I just found the Orange County people to be so uncooperative and and so possessive of, of information. I know that that when I talked to, to them and somebody slipped and told me something, and then I'd say something about it to Dick or Tim, and they didn't know about it. And I met, what was his name who was with the SBI? Fred Cahoon. Um Fred didn't know squat, and he really did He was... How? Why they both, both agencies kept him out of a loop as much as they did when he could have been the glue that pulled everything together.
7: Why do you think they did that?
9: I think it was just a matter of propriety. They wanted to, each of them wanted to be the one to solve the case, and in the process they, they blew it. I don't know if it would improve things, but I do believe that SBI has resources that local governments don't and uh, that he could have been a tremendous asset. He, he truly was out of the loop, completely. Now, I don't know if, if that was just his posture when he was talking to me. Very well could have been. You know, the SBI always plays it close to the vest, but just from what he said, and I, I just thought he didn't, if he knew more, he would have done. But I don't think anybody's willing to give it up. And Tim and Dick weren't. They were not. Cooperative with Orange County, and I won't say I'm quoting them verbatim, but I think that there were times that they were they were saying, we don't tell him anything, they ain't telling us nothing. And, you know, monkey see, monkey do. Do
3: you think this case would have gotten solved had they shared information at the right time? I think it
9: would have come a hell of a lot closer than it did. I just think the absence of technology in any situation is a a serious mistake. This is not a game. This is a life and death situation. And who gets the credit is immaterial. When you've got, a, you've got a killer who's walking around possibly thinking about his next victims.
3: Those words would be a running theme throughout our interviews with law enforcement.
7: Over six agencies would ultimately be assigned to work the murders of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain.
3: Dozens of officers, agents, and detectives would investigate leads and interrogate suspects. How
7: is this supposed to work if they wouldn't communicate?
3: What information might slip through the cracks? And once Tim Horn starts putting together the pieces of a long-ago mystery,
7: what names will come bubbling to the surface? We'll have answers to all those questions and more in our next installment of The Long Dance.
0: The Long Dance is produced by Eric Pruitt, Drew Adamack, and me, Piper Kessler. This was Episode 2. Please subscribe. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like this story, please tell your friends. Share it on social media. Help us spread the word about the stories of the lives touched by the murders of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain. Episodes are written by Eric Pruitt. Field produced by Drew Adamek. My name is Piper Kessler, and I'm the sound engineer. Mike Rollin composed the music score, and additional voices in this episode were presented by Michael Howard and Nick Beery. Our website is thelongdancepodcast.com, and it includes additional media relevant to the story. Please be sure to check it out. And most of all, thank you for listening.